Welcome to the Climate Fix podcast. In this episode, our co-hosts discuss the connection between trees and climate change. We did a ton of tree search and are excited to share what we learned about different tree species around the planet, the past and current threats to earth trees, including climate change itself, and the fascinating potential of trees to help us mitigate and adapt to extreme conditions and events that result from climate change. After listening to this episode, you just might feel like hugging a tree. Hi, my name is Tim Falls and I'm based in Taos, New Mexico. Hi, my name is Amelia Holcomb and I'm based in New York City. Hi, my name is Asim Sain. I'm based in the United Kingdom. Hi, my name is Margaret Benisek and I'm also based in the United Kingdom in London. Well, I think I think that when we talk about reforestation, one of the things that we are saying implicitly, but we often don't say explicitly, is that actually we need to really protect and sustain the forests that we already have. And in fact, the exact opposite is happening. And setting aside kind of greenwashing and trying to add forest to the world, which, you know, should happen, we have to think about, well, what are, can we even keep these forests that we have right now? And I think we talk a lot about forest threats or our, our conversations about forest threats often focus on land use change, like agriculture and wildfires. And those get a lot of attention. You know, when you see flames leaping to the sky, we have smoke covering our communities. That's obviously huge and noticeable. But I think I was also very interested in these quiet killers that are also human impacted, also climate change impacted, which are invasive forest species and invasive forest pests. And so this past week, I went, I went on a hike through a forest in the Northeast of the United States that's very familiar to me. It's the type of forest I've been hiking in for a long time. And as I walked every 50 feet, I saw another ash tree completely stripped of its bark looked like a machine had just cut it all away. Can you describe that? What does that look like? What's funny is at first we thought there was like a bear or a porcupine climbing trees really clumsily and pulling down all their bark. Like you would just see sort of like this light brown, you know, interior because the the ash trees are this have this dark brown bark and you see the light brown interior with the dark brown just completely missing. If you looked closer, you'd see this went all the way up the trunk, all the way to the top. And you would often see on top of the snow, it was mostly snowy at this time, pieces of bark fallen to the ground, sometimes covering the ground surrounding the tree with like inches of bark, almost as if the tree had been like freshly mulched or something, right? But actually what had happened was this had just all fallen off of the tree. Sounds awful. Yeah, it was. It was quite, I think it really was jarring to see, you could see how these ash trees fit into the forest and every one of them was dying. What was killing yeah. them? <laughs> right. So that brings us to this Asian pest, the emerald ash borer. It's native to Asia. It was first discovered in North America in 2002. And it's since spread across the United States and parts of Canada. In Asia, it's a secondary pest. So that means that it kills weak and unhealthy ash trees, usually after another threat has come through. Not, it's not really a significant threat to healthy ash trees in, in Asia. 
Their ash trees are believed to be resilient because they have really high tannin concentrations and other defense mechanisms. And so what happens is they have larvae which chew tunnels under the ash bark and they're searching for a safe place to stay warm during the winter. But these tunnels destroy the structures that transport nutrients around the tree through the tree's circulatory system and uh, results in the bark kind of falling off like this. So this is just one specific test, but... Yeah, and I'll, it reminds me of my time spent in Colorado. I lived in the state of Colorado, which is largely in the Rocky Mountain range in the Western United States and lived there from 2014 to, oh, no, sorry, 20, 2008 to 2014 before I moved to California. And the pine beetle became a huge infestation there. And even to the like when I was there, I was even volunteering to go out in the forests and pick up all the dead trees that had been killed by these pine beetles, stack them in a place for either burning or for another treatment methodology that they have where they basically leave those stacks of trees that still have the beetles in them in the sun to to bake basically and to create uh, conditions where they won't survive. And they even put plastic over them for a while to, to kill them. And there's many different things like pheromones and audios, different like high pitched wow. audio that they're using to try to mitigate this. And so since it's been a while since I lived there, I checked back in and read an article this morning actually from the Den Denver Gazette. And they just did, which they do yearly, they do a flyover of all the forests to see, is the damage increasing? And is it increasing at a faster or slower rate compared to recent years? And they found that the, the damage in terms of number of acres being affected by these beetles is definitely increasing, but it might be increasing a little bit more slowly. And one of the things that I think that article and another one that I listened to this morning mentioned is that, you know, these insects get a lot of attention because they're new, they're really easy to identify and kind of point to as a as an obvious factor in the, the big problem. But, and I should say, there is the climate change aspect that not only is maybe giving a better climate for these insects to, to live in in general, but is creating the tree, like the drought, for example, is weakening the tree. So they are more susceptible to any insect or any um, disease and that as Amelia was kind of pointing to is like a less is a more silent and less is more in the background and although we do know that we're in a drought oftentimes it's such an a sustained thing and a little less obvious than a bunch of beetles boring holes or making trees turn brown. Yeah, Marquetta I think you linked an article about the way about like the way that invasive species are becoming more of a threat because of climate change that I was really interested in. Yes. So I read an article about the fact that as the climate um, warms and as the winters are much milder, because obviously, you know, just like we talked about last week about the Texas winter storm, you know, that is an extreme that happens maybe like once every 10 years. It may start happening more often, 
but generally it doesn't really happen every single year. And that is the point with climate change, you know, because most of the time you will get much milder winters. And that is causing some of the insect to survive even during the winter. And that's why it can then really spread across the entire forest and kill the entire forest. Or not, not kill, but like really damage significantly. So this is something that is happening in Europe as well. And I, I'm not sure if pine beetle is actually the same thing as bark beetle. I think it's very similar or it's like from the same family. Maybe it's just like different terminology. But yeah, that's something that has been happening in mainland Europe. I'm not sure about the UK, but definitely in mainland Europe, you know, it's killed or like significantly damaged, like really large areas of tree where the trees literally dried up. And what's really interesting, though, I started reading uh, this book, which is called The Hidden Life of Trees. And they were looking at the science behind the, the roots and how they are connected and what they do to one another. And it's really interesting because it seems like the roots and trees in general, they just work almost like a social network. And there was this scientist who coined it like wood wide web which I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> and that way, you know, it seems like the roots are really helping one another, even if there's like a, like a damaged or, or weak tree, the roots will still continue supporting it and feeding it, you know, and giving it like information about any upcoming dangers and stuff. So it seems almost like this forest is like a living organisms, like super organism that can really inform the other parts, maybe just like help protect the other parts of the forest just so they can get ready. I don't know, I thought that was really fascinating. Like trees are awesome. I love them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I think what that points to is the real thing that we're getting at, which is that it's more than about an individual beetle or an individual tree and how much carbon that tree might sequester or something like that. It's really about ecosystem resilience. And I think this is something you're alluding to as well, Tim, that, you know, it's, it's the, it's the knockoff effects. It's the gradual weakening of a forest by one thing after another, by drought, like you mentioned, by the, by one beetle, by the loss of the ash trees, which might support other pollinators and insects, you know, that really causes a problem. And one of the things I was, when I was researching the emerald ash borer, one of the things, you know, I mentioned it's in, in Asia, right? It's a secondary pest. It kills weaker trees, right? And in the US, this is still true. The emerald ash borer goes straight for weak ash trees. And one of the ways that they've at least been able to detect it, even if not to contain it, is by deliberately doing what's called girdling. So when you cut a kind of circle around the bark of a tree, it kills and or weakens the tree, again, damaging its circulatory system. And the emerald ash beetles will concentrate straight on that unhealthy tree, ignoring most of the ash trees around it, at least for several years until that tree and the trees very close by can no longer sustain them, right? So in general, these kinds of pests often just have more effect on on damaged trees and trees that can't sustain one another through the kinds of forest superorganism support networks that you're talking about, Marketa. So when you're describing it in Asia as a sec, what did you say, secondary pest, is the effect that it's having right now because the trees are generally weakening, perhaps due to, well, to climate change issues, and therefore 
So no, yeah, and I don't want to misrepresent it. So in North America and likely in Europe too, once it reaches Europe, the eventually the emerald ash borer kills. I think in the in the place where it was first introduced, it killed ninety nine percent of the ash trees in Michigan. They had ninety nine percent mortality of green, black, and white ash. There were no ash seeds detected in the soil seed bank. And the only regeneration of ash trees was from basal sprouting. So this is these are called epicormic buds. So sometimes if you see a cut down tree, right, you'll see that it's got like shoots coming out of it. This is a form of regeneration, and that was pretty much the only form that they saw. And so, and meanwhile, new ash trees forming this way are not able to grow to reproductive maturity before they're again killed by low levels of of the emerald ash beetle population. So this isn't, in North America, this is not just unhealthy ash trees. I think it's interesting that it targets them first, but I think this is, I mean, the threat here is what's called functional extinction of the American ash. Functional extinction, meaning the population is so reduced that it can no longer play its ecological role, even if there are still some individuals of a species left. Yeah, that reminds me of one one thing, reality that was pointed out by a scientist that I was learning from in my research, which is this whole situation we're talking about in relation in the context of trees and climate change. It's very, very complex. You know, there's no one answer to why is what hap- what is happening happening, right? Because, for example, we've talked about the beetles, we've talked about droughts, we've talked about fires, and those all play into one another and affect one another. And it's it's kind of a I think the destruction, if you will, from from the general conditions of climate change is a fascinating and kind of sad reflection of the ecosystems that are being destroyed themselves, right? These are very complex ecosystems and the destruction of them is therefore very complex because everything's interconnected. Some examples of that that I thought were super fascinating were when I was listening to the podcast Timber Wars, which uh, focuses on the Pacific Northwest and the old growth forests of redwoods and Douglas firs. And these are Old growth forests have trees that are up to 2,000 years old that have been here since the Roman Empire. And a tree, a giant redwood on the coast of California or Oregon, for example, takes 1,500 years to reach maturity. And the canopy starts like 10 stories up. So in Decades ago, when we didn't know as much about forests, scientists and forest, the the actual U.S. Forest Service considered an old growth forest to be a desert, an ecological desert, because there were no animals on the ground, because there weren't as many bushes. All the animals were in the bushy, like less younger growth. But that was before they had climbed up into the canopy and discovered a huge ecosystem of animals and plants in a canopy that were invisible from the ground, like voles that had lived for generations without even touching the ground, and lichen 
and these lichen that existed that they had found on the ground but mostly existed in the canopy were actually defending those old growth trees from potential ins insect infestations because they were seeing like oh there's this insect that could kill this tree and they evolve much more quickly than the tree because the generations of them they'll have multiple generations in a year whereas <laughs> this tree is going to take 2000 years <laughs> to to like evolve once right and the way that the tree was able to defend itself from these insects is the lichen that it grew on it and the lichen were evolving as as fast if not faster than the insects to 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 keep up those defenses it reminds me of the method that was developed by japanese botanist akira miyawaki i'm not sure if you I've heard of him, but he basically, he created a technique of planting forests really close to one another. So you basically just take all those tiny little seedlings and you place them really close to one another. And you would think, or like, you know, from my understanding of agriculture, you would think that they will not have enough space to grow. But actually, they grow, they are proven to grow about 10 times faster because all of those roots and everything, they connect much more quickly. And also the, the tops of the, of the baby trees, you know, they also start interconnecting. And all of that creates this entire ecosystem much faster. So this is actually a proven method of reforestation in urban areas, which I thought was pretty cool. You know, trees are just really... Amazing. And one thing that we should also mention, Asim, is fungi. <laughs> because if, if we have a lower yeah, tree, gonna, yeah. you know, yeah. those are also part of the ecosystem and they are usually connected yeah. by fungi. And the fungi almost works as a connector between these loner trees and some perhaps distant mm. forest areas or like, you know, forested areas that you know some people call them almost like this fiber optic internet cable network which i thought was so cool like if you if you can think about if you think about it you know we just almost like all the technology that we use mirrors or is mirrored in the nature how amazing is that <laughs> i've been starting to research on a casual basis i don't think i'm I'm really going to take take this up but this technique called korean natural farming i'm not too sure i've mentioned it before it's all about using the bacteria and fungus in your local area so for instance one of the things you would do is you'd go around the area where your farm is and you'd collect bits of fungus like it's just mycelium that's lying on the ground you'd you'd put some cooked rice there you'd leave it there around the fungus for about two weeks you come back to it it's got a very mess of fungus which you then grow and grow and grow and you kind of put other things inside it then you finally mix it in with your soil and then it then creates this wonderful ecosystem in the soil and then that's what provides you all your nutrients for your for your for your plants and it costs you very very little and it's all about and they all talk again about the interconnectedness of of everything and it's like you you look after your soil you look after the ingredients which creates the connections and everything else just grows lusciously on top of it I mean that just sounds because we've been talking about the beetles that are killing the trees, but then we talk about the lichen that's protecting the trees and how everything is just connected in that way. Well, I was just going to 
connect those two dots and I guess the third dot that of the Pacific Northwest, and I haven't looked into this, but when researching fungus and mycelium, I did learn that the largest single organism in the world is a mycelial network that is underground in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. And that makes makes me curious, like, is the presence of that intact mycelial network that spans so much ground related to the the presence of that those old old growth forests which of course we've mostly destroyed as humans by now but before we had destroyed them and those that still exist are literally some of the largest and oldest living things on earth which and it's just like a a mind-blowing scale of these trees and this network underneath them connecting them all and before i hand it off i'll also just mention some <laughs> drawing the connection back to colorado and the rocky mountains the aspen tree is another fascinating organism because they connect they grow in groves and when you see a big bunch of aspen trees in one area which are beautiful to look at in the fall because the leaves all turn gold and um, they're just gorgeous. Those are all connected underground. So a mass of aspen trees is very often considered, you know, you have to dig under there and see, but one organism. And just like the mycelial network connects different species of trees, this species connects itself. And a fun fact about the aspens is that they're walking north because of climate change. They the groves are heading slowly northward. So, what I'm hearing is is that is that these groves or, or regions of trees are getting attacked and dying. But at the same time, if they had uh, a, a bigger network, a bigger network of different biodiversity, different species, the mycelial network underneath, it would protect them from climate change as well. <laughs> Right. So, well, I mean, you get back to the land use thing. I think I, this is where my research has left me a little hopeless, at least in terms of North America. I was listening to one expert in land use say that because of the number of human beings we have in America in particular, we don't have any more space, according to this one person, to grow trees. And I saw some of the other research that, that someone shared on our board that pointed to other areas of the planet that do have space to reforest or aforest. But, you know, agriculture and living space is the real competition for forest space right now. And because we're so heavily dependent on meat as a global society in terms of our food sources we're tearing down the amazon rainforest to make clear cutting mm -hmm. that to make room for cattle and in other areas clear cutting that to make room for palm forests so we can satisfy the demand for palm oil in the world and so it's we have some even if we come to some conclusion of like 
what is the solution? What do we need to do? As you were alluding to or heading in the direction of there, Austin, we still have this huge force against any progress in that direction, which is money, power, and industry. That's so interesting that you mentioned that because just this morning, I actually read an article on Anthropocene magazine that talked about the potential to offset carbon emissions of different cities by reforesting. And they found, they just did a research of like thousands of different, you know, cities of different sizes. And they did a research on how much carbon footprint and carbon emissions could be sequestered if they reforested those areas and they found out that urban areas that are defined as having 50,000 people or more they have more potential to offset they have the potential to offset 82,000 metric tons of carbon equivalent each year which accounts for about 1% of total emissions from cities and that may sound really insignificant, but they said that because there are many smaller cities compared to the really big ones that obviously have a much bigger carbon footprint, so the smaller cities could actually cut their carbon emissions up to 25% through reforesting. And not only in areas like in streets and stuff, but also cities have many areas that are just you know, just land filled with grass or something, those could be reforested as well. So the potential, even though obviously all of those things that you mentioned just now about cattle, uh, soy, coffee, all of that is totally true. And we're those are the areas where we're killing some of the ancient forests, and that's really bad. But on the other hand, there is definitely potential to reforest some of these urban areas that could also help with climate change. Not to mention that, obviously, during the super warm summers that we've been experiencing in the past few years, including you know having more trees in streets and stuff can also really significantly cool them down which is really important and sometimes it's almost life-saving right like some of those cities can get so hot because of the amount of concrete and and glass and everything they just get so so hot that's exactly as you said even last time you know sometimes it's not even possible to have your dog walk barefoot you know <laughs> like you literally have to pick them up yeah that's really awesome because heat waves are one of the biggest threats to human life and yeah when you think about we usually think about these big open spaces where trees could be grown and we ignore these urban areas that they could exist as well which reminds me of the science behind the mental health benefits of being near trees and how especially during the pandemic it's been critical for people to spend time in nature and within trees and those who haven't had that access have you know suffered a little bit more to the to the extent that there's even a, a website called tree.fm where you can just tune into forests from the internet to get your dose of, of forest each day for your mental health <laughs> I've been using Calm app for that. Just like it definitely had an impact on me during COVID and during this entire pandemic, obviously being stuck in London. You know, London is quite like it has some green areas, but obviously during lockdown, you know, you're not really allowed to go there. So my options in terms of going out to nature were so limited and I could definitely feel it on my 
mental health and you know just overall just well-being you know i just really so wanted to go <laughs> to a forest and just go for a walk you know just to clear my mind and everything i think what i'm getting from this conversation which which is really interesting for me was and and i do i do really see forests and and, and life and nature in, in that other way but i've just been thinking of trees in this commoditized way of carbon it's just, you know, they were just this thing and you grow them and you suck carbon out of the atmosphere and, and that's it and you put them down and, and that's their purpose. But, you know, they have this mental health benefit. They have this interconnectedness with, with, with loads of other species and, and plants and animal life and they protect themselves, they protect others, they protect us. There's all this other benefit think of, and even those of us who care about the, the climate, I, even I have fallen into the trap of just treating them as a commodity. Yeah, which comes back to the recent UN report that talks about the fact that we should rethink as human species, you know, we should, we should definitely rethink natural capital. Because at the moment, if we, if we gain profit, for example, as a nation, you know, as if a nation gains some profits from say fishing industry even if they overfished their own area which is obviously bad for the entire ecosystem you know it is still considered as growth and that is wrong if you think about it because from the natural perspective and definitely from the climate change perspective we need to consider climate change and natural capital as part of this entire equation because we cannot think of profit as just something that will get us money. We also need mm -hmm. to think about ways how it will damage or hopefully not damage the natural ecosystem around us. Because then that's when it comes to finite limits on the planet. You know, at the moment we're just using way too much compared to what is available on the planet. We're using, I think, about 17 you know, we're, we're acting as if we, we were living or had resources of 1.7 planets, mm. planet Earth. But yeah, we, we just need to rethink that and, and change, how, change the policies, actually. You know, it just comes back yeah. to how we think about natural capital. So forests, water, clean water, clean air, all of that needs to be accounted into, okay, if, you, if I want to have a business in this area, where are my limits in terms of damaging nature compared to where are my limits, you know, where, where do I want to get in terms of growth? And I think that that's, that's where, you know, the circular economy and the entire concept of, I'm not sure if you guys heard of um, Donut Economies by Kate Rayworth, but that's a really fascinating concept that takes all of those things into account. And if anyone is interested in finding out more about that, there's a really great TED Talk by Kate Rayworth about donut economics, it's it's called that, and it's just really brilliant. Such a great concept. I really hope that people and cities and countries will accept that and implement it in the future. And what is donut economics? So donut economics is this concept. It's like an economical model that takes into consideration the finite limits of planet, of cities, of people. So it accounts even for like happiness, it accounts for climate change, it accounts for various types of resources. And all of that shows you in that model, if you're using just about, you know, as much as is available, or if you're using too much. 
and then you can just compare it and see where you need to perhaps step back a little bit. Yeah, the visualization mm -hmm. of the donut economics is a circle kind of looks like a donut and kind of when you look at her presentation of it it makes a lot of sense visually as well where you know if we expand beyond these the ring then we're going beyond um, our limits and yeah i just i wanted to also mention kind of building off of that the when we talk about climate change at a high level, we always mention or hear words like adaptation and mitigation. And I think we need to think about trees, not just as a commodity so that we can apply it, our, our understanding of it, build our understanding of it holistically and, under, and realize or recognize that they help with the adaptation efforts they help with the mitigation efforts through sequestration in an adaptation sense you know if we take the trees away more mudslides happen if we leave the trees there fewer mudslides happen and with all these wildfires happening you know there are new solutions with planting more lush trees in certain areas to build firewalls for example so it's a delicate balance, I think, between seeing them as a commodity and something that we can use for our own good, whether it's to protect us or to make money off of them, but also when designing that use, understanding that and just like, keeping in mind this interconnectedness and this ecosystem that they create and the biodiversity and how much, how many dependencies, thousands if not millions of dependencies that are created by the planting of one organism. When we when we talk about this sort of, for example, when we're talking about economic models or we're thinking about trees as a commodity, I think one of the things that these models often assume and any kind of understanding of anything as a commodity is a way of quantification, right? And it's a way of assuming that we know a lot more than we do about the value of something. And in particular, the value of a tree, right? And so to say like, well, this is what it should cost to cut down the tree, I think is a huge amount of presumption on our part that we know the cost of cutting down a tree. And I think one of the things I was struck by when I was reading about the ecological impacts of the emerald ash borer and the loss of ash trees is how much the impacts that we've, that have been written about in scientific articles are really first order impacts. How they, we don't, we don't know all of the knockoff effects, right? We just see those first things. But just to give you a sense of like what some of those are, right? Increased. So one of the big problems with the emerald ash borer is that it kills trees very rapidly. So you get these huge uh, gaps, canopy gaps, right? Which increase sunlight to the forest floor. Now, many native plant species increase their toxicity in response to increased sunlight. And so what that means is it causes the native species that feed on those plants to have slower growth, more mortality, right? And that's, again, that's just the things we noticed, right? Another thing that happens is it tends to be that invasive species are extremely good at taking advantage of gaps in the canopy, right? And so one of the concerns is this sort of invasion meltdown where invasive woody shrubs 
come in and are able to better take advantage of that light than the native shrubs and thereby in the long term alter the forest succession patterns by outcompeting native species. And then there are all these effects that we can just measure, but we don't quite know what they mean, right? It affects soil pH, it affects mineral concentration, it affects soil moisture. And what does that mean for all these other species? You know, what do we know, right? We can identify 45 species that feed exclusively on ash trees, but that's just the ones that we know about. And I think that's what we're really playing with here. I'm going back to the whole message of, of, of the interconnectedness of these forests, and and I think there's something there. I think there's something in the fact that they're. I, I think they're they're protecting each other. They're supporting each other. They're defending against invaders. It's more adaptation. And so I don't know what the solution is, but I do think that that I personally am going to walk away from this from this conversation thinking about forests more holistically, thinking about planting trees more holistically, thinking about about the biodiversity and the environment of 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 a tree and for me for me is thinking i'm i'm not going to think about trees in a as a commodity anymore yeah that's a good point and i think that it's also really reassuring that you know the un and various governments all around the world like definitely in the us and the uk you know from what i've heard they're looking at reforestation as a solution to climate change you know there are definitely conversations around this topic so i think that that's that's a positive sign you know that things will improve you know and I, once um, all of these nations catch up you know then we will see positive uh, changes in other areas of the world should we end there everybody go go hug a tree <laughs>